You can turn in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at James 1, just a couple of verses tonight, verses 1 through 4. Uh, if, if you got one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you, that's page 950. Uh, a very important text, a significant one, and one that I hope will be of great service to each one of us this evening. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is God's holy word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Amen. May the Lord grant us his help and his spirit as we look to his word together. Now this is a very important text for us. It's a text that helps us and teaches us how to understand and properly think about the trials that we all inevitably experience in this life. And it gives us a lens through which to view them, a way in which to frame them, a context in which to place them. And we all know that the way you see um, a narrative playing out in context changes everything. For, for instance, if I told you that my niece a couple weeks ago uh, snatched a candy bar out of my nephew's hand, you might think, oh, that wasn't very nice, that was unkind. But if you, you add some more context and I tell you that he is allergic to peanuts and she knew that there was peanuts in that candy bar, all of a sudden what looked like a mean act looks like quite a kind and even noble act. The re reframing, the information makes all the difference. And so th what this text does is it helps us understand and reframe and contextualize our trials. And instead of looking at them only on a physical plane, it helps us understand that there's also a spiritual plane. There's a spiritual perspective through which to view them, which can change the way we think. And so the contention tonight is that we, are to we can rejoice in the conviction that even our most lamentable and grievous trials, that in them God is working graciously in the hearts of his children. We're, we're reframing trials tonight. Uh, take, a look, take a look at verse 2. We, we looked at verse 1 when we intro introduced this book a few weeks ago. So verse 2 here. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice when you're looking there, it doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. It says when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, this is a guarantee that trials are going to be met. And it's interesting, when he's saying when you meet trials, the, the nuance of this word is when you happen upon them, when they come upon you. And this term is used really only twice in the New Testament, and both times gives us a really good example of what this is talking about. The first is, if you remember, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it talks about the Samaritan who was happened upon by robbers. He met robbers. He was just going on his way, and boom, robbers attacking him. It was nothing to do with what he was doing, anything wrong. It happened to him. The other time is where we're told that the ship Paul was riding in, it happened upon a reef, a hidden reef under the water. They didn't know it was there. 
and boom, they're in a trial. We happen upon all sorts of unexpected, unexplained often trials in our lives. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher says that, in a sense, time and chance happen to us all. And we have no idea the allotment and assortment of trials that we're all going to experience in our lives. The amount and variety of them really is infinite. So we think of categories, we think of health and finances and relationships and natural disasters, all these things. It, when it says various trials, the word actually means multicolored. That is, there's trials of every shade, every hue, and you don't have to talk to someone for very long before you can find out that they've faced particular trials that are somewhat unique to them, though in other ways common to us all. And that's life in this fallen world. It's a life subject to corruption, death, and suffering and pain. So we're looking at these trials that we're all going to meet. We're going to happen upon them. And when we're talking about these trials, the word used here for trials is also the word for temptation. You remember when Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. This is the same word here. But really both are in view. Because when you think about it, trials and temptations go together. There's a sense in which every trial is a temptation, and every temptation is a trial. What, what do I mean? Think of it like this way. If you've known what it is to battle against a persistent sin, that feels like the oppression of a trial. It's a temptation to you, but it's almost as if you're trying to keep a garden clear of weeds, and they keep coming up, and you're exerting yourself and laboring to pull up those weeds, and you keep going, and you're exhausted, and you feel the burdens of the temptations of sin. And that's a trial, it's a suffering, it's an oppression. And just as someone who is ill physically desires to be free of that illness, so the person with sin in their soul desires to be free from that burden and weight of it, of the hope of heaven for both. All temptations are also trials in this way. But also, all the trials we experience present particular temptations to us. Some are different depending on the trial, but every trial tempts us to complain. Every trial we experience tempts, tempts us to grumble and to be discontent, right? Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. They're wandering, and all the hardships they experience, they always end up complaining about them all. Lord, we don't have enough food. God gives manna. Then they're like, ah, oh, this manna's boring. We have too much manna. We want meat. Lots of quail. Oh, no, there's too much meat. We're sick of the meat. Uh, never contented, always in these trials, they were tempted to complain. So in our trials, we also face temptation. And what both of these have in common is they're both related to this word also for testing. Trials and temptations test our faith. They put pressure on our faith in different ways. In a trial, the temptation and the test of your faith is this. Will you hope in God? Will you trust God in your trials? In temptations, it's a different test. The test is, will you obey God? Will you heed his commands and be faithful to him? And James speaks about them as tests of faith. He says the testing of your faith. That's what these trials and temptations are, tests of faith. And so if we're going to inevitably come across these tests, 
The question is, how ought we to think about them? How ought we to respond to them? And that's where the main command in this passage comes at the beginning of verse 2. Where look again, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Simply, he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, or consider it all joy. And it's interesting, the word used here is the word that's used for ruling and leading, someone who's a ruler or leader of people. So what this idea is, if if we are going to uh, consider it all joy, is saying to make it the ruling thought in your mind, the leading thought in your mind, all joy. And in trials, you have so many thoughts that are bombarding you. Like imagine like a crowd of thoughts all vying for prominence. There's the thoughts that say, be anxious about this, or the thoughts that say, get mad about this, or the thoughts that say, go hide under a rock about this, whatever the case may be. And we have lots of thoughts, some good, some bad, but James is saying is, let this thought come and take leadership in the whole crowd. The thought, all joy. And this isn't the way we sometimes uh, qualify joy to say that it's, it's, it's a sense of calm or peace. No, that's peace. The word joy here is actually gladness and delight. To let gladness, delight, and joy rule in the space of these thoughts. Count it all joy. But, okay, it's very important here that we get this it right. Count what all joy. Okay, a lot of people get this wrong. Uh, James is not saying count your trials all joy. That's not what this verse says. He doesn't say count your trials joy. He says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing, or for you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So it's not the trials here that produce the mindset of joy. It's a particular knowledge about the trials. It's a particular knowing of what God is doing in the trials that allows you to have this joy-ruling mindset. That is, there is something you can know in your trials that is a glad um, consideration. And this is really important to understand because this text often gets misused. Maybe even you could say it gets abused and foisted upon people in an inappropriate way. Because it can often be, this text, count it all joy, count it all joy, can really easily sound like a pie in the sky, just paint on a smile, all is well, pixie dust, think happy thoughts kind of thinking, glaze over the raw pain of the situation. And that's not what James is intending here at all. And if it's used that way, it comes across as naive. And the thought is, don't you know that there is deep suffering in this world? There is intense pain that many deal with every day. And so it comes across then, if it's used glibly that way, as immature or even offensive. And it actually goes against what we learn in Scripture about lament. You might have been thinking, right, doesn't Scripture call us often to lament and to grieve? Don't we see that again and again in the Psalms, David is pouring out his grief to the Lord. He's lamenting the pain and suffering in this world. And so it's important that this text not be used in a way that nullifies grief. And that's why it's important that we understand what James is saying. Because counting it all joy is not opposed to lament. It is good and right and proper 
to grieve and lament the sufferings in this world. This suffering and pain wasn't part of God's original design. When God made the world, it was good. And God desires to make it good again. And pain and suffering and death are going to have no part in God's new creation when we once again walk in goodness. Therefore, we can grieve and mourn the evil and suffering and pain that exist in this world. And so don't ever feel like you need to try to hide and paper over the pain you're going through by pretending all is well when it's not. We've said often in our church's history that we want this to be a place for weakness. We heard this morning we're all vulnerable in different ways. We're all weak in many different ways. Jesus himself, as we heard a couple weeks ago, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So then what is James saying? What is James saying? James is saying that for Christians, that although we grieve and lament the causes and the effects of suffering in this world, we can find joy in the knowledge of what God is doing in us through our sufferings. This is why James says we can consider it all joy in our trials. Look again at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We can take joy in our trials because we can know for sure that when our faith is tested, the product will be steadfastness, or you could say endurance, or you could say patience, or really a strong and robust faith. And notice this, this is really interesting. James doesn't say that these tests of our faith can produce steadfastness, nor that they might produce steadfastness, or that we should pray to God in our trials that he would help produce steadfastness in us. It says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is a guaranteed product of the testing. Um, I, I don't know if you remember doing like science labs in high school, and there was nothing worse for me than when you went to all the work to try to set up the experiment with the chemicals and nothing really happened that was supposed to happen. Like it was going to be like, oh, this is going to turn blue and do a puff of ring of smoke and nothing happens. You're like, well, we tried and we hoped it would get the end result of the chemical reaction, but no worries. And that's why you love one that's guaranteed to have effect. That's why, you know, if you go to a science fair, like half of the exhibits are baking soda and vinegar because you just can't get baking soda and vinegar wrong. It always fizzes no matter what. It produces a reaction. And this isn't an experiment that you go through trials, you might gain endurance. No, James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness in the New Testament is used to talk about a persevering faith. Again, think of this morning, we heard of the perseverance of the saints. That is, a faith that perseveres continually. And there is a sense in which you can think of faith like a spiritual muscle. It exists in every believer, but it can grow and be strengthened and get more and more healthy through its own exercise. And the problem is, is that in our lives of comfort and ease, often we know we ought to be exercising faith, diligently using the means of grace, but we have other options and alternatives that seem better. It's kind of like, you know, living in a room and you have a treadmill there 
and you're like, I could go on it and exercise my heart and get healthy, but the couch seems like a better alternative. If you have the option, you'll avoid it, just like we avoid our spiritual exercise. But what trials are, trials are like being picked up and placed directly on a moving treadmill. Maybe it's moving faster than you expected, and it's one which you often can't get off. And so you're being forced to run, and it's often uncomfortable and painful. But whenever you run, your heart is getting exercised. It is inevitably getting strengthened. The blood is pumping. The oxygen is flowing. And just as the pain of exercise leads to the good results of physical health, so does the pain of trials lead to greater spiritual health. Namely, James is telling us, steadfastness of faith. And in this, you can rejoice. If, if, if you think of your own life, this is a really amazing fact to consider. Is that in every trial or temptation that you've ever encountered as a believer, God has used it to strengthen your faith. That is, ever since God gave you the gift of faith, every dark tunnel you've gone through where your faith came out on the other side is a testimony that your faith has come out with the greater history of endurance and steadfastness. Every time. But maybe you're thinking like, well, there's many times I've fallen to the temptation. There's many times I've felt totally crushed in the trial. How is that true of me? The question is not whether your faith flickered or struggled, but is your faith still intact? And if your faith is still intact, even though the light of the candle might have flickered and dimmed, if it still is there, if there is still any light there, it has persevered and shown a history of endurance. And you may feel weak in faith, but look back on what your faith has gone through. Look back on all the opportunities you had for faith to dissipate. Every temptation to sin that you've ever encountered, every sin you've committed, that could have been the sin that led you away from God, away from faith, away from the church. I know people that have fallen away acting out on the same sins I'm tempted with. Every time you've undergone a trial of what seems like a senseless suffering, a random affliction, that's an opportunity that you could have shaken your fist at God and said, what, should, what more should I have to do with you? What have you done for me? Don't you also know people that under the affliction like that seed in the stony ground meet the trials and say, why why believe in a God that allows suffering like this? That could have been you. But despite all of our faltering and failing, if you today are still saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, then you see in you that intact faith that is showing a history of endurance and steadfastness, patience, and perseverance, maybe even more than you might have realized. If you've ran a really long race, say a marathon, which I have not, but if you've ran till something that for you feels like a long distance, you know that you don't feel strong and heroic and noble the whole time. 
often you feel totally at your wit's end, feeble, like your body's breaking down on you. But you get to the end and realize, my, that strength carried me through. I actually made it the whole way. Maybe there was more strength in me than I expected. God is at work in your trial, strengthening the muscles of your faith, seeing that you grow in a steadfast, persevering, enduring faith. And this, James says, should be a cause for joy. And why is this steadfastness so important? Why should we consider that trials producing steadfastness is such a good thing for us? Well, because of what he says in verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. It's the way to perfection. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says here that steadfastness is the path to a perfection and completion, a lacking of nothing. The idea in the words here is, and they're often translated this way as coming to maturity. That is reaching the end that you were designed for. It fits well when, when, when you think of children. Children grow up and mature into their full-grown, 100% adult form. And this idea for Christians of growing, in per, growing up into perfection is the meaning of growing up into Christ-likeness, maturing in our faith in a way that it more and more reflects Christ. Uh, c- consider a couple of places how this term is used in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so this is the call to the believer to strive after getting closer and closer to the perfection or perfect maturity of our heavenly Father. And this is also the goal of Christian ministry. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28, about Jesus, that him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ or perfect in Christ. This is the goal, what we're striving for in the Christian life, greater family likeness, to look more and more like our perfect heavenly father, to look more and more like Christ, our elder brother. And really, this is our joy because the more and more that you become like God, the more and more that you actually share in the perfect blessedness and joy of God. That is, the greater holiness you achieve, the greater happiness you receive. As you become like God, you share in his joy. And so it's amazing then that in trials, God is working in his people, enduring faith, a maturing faith that more and more enters into the joy of Christ-likeness. And this accords with what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 5, where he says that we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing, again, that knowledge is key here, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit as a result of our trials. And really, it's amazing and wild to think, how does God, how is it that he uses even the most horrible trials in our lives to help us share in his love and joy? 
How amazing that our God is so wise that he can take what the enemy intended for evil and turn it for our good. And this is such a gift. This is a gift to the believer because, as we've seen, we each will encounter in our lives manifold, multicolored causes of pain and suffering. And do you realize that that's all it, it could have been? All the pain and suffering you've experienced, that could be the end of it. If you look at this worldview through the lens of materialism, that's all you have, suffering. If you look at this world on the basis of naturalism or atheism, all you have in suffering is just suffering, just random, pointless, stupid suffering. And God could have left us in that state. But God in his love, he seeks to do his children good, even in the suffering we experience. And that is a kind gift to the child of God. Because God's heart for his children is that of a perfect heavenly father. And even you earthly parents, you know that your children are going to get hurt and injured and feel pain in various ways. And you, even in your limited capacities, you try to bring them some good out of it. Um, maybe you, you encourage them that in their pain, that maybe they're stronger than they realize. Or maybe you help them realize that they, they made a poor choice and can learn to do better in the future. Or maybe in their pain, you just help them realize, you know what, I'm always going to be here for you. You know you can always come to me and I will be here to help you. Maybe you want to help them that in their pains they can learn empathy for others who are feeling similar things. Many different ways. And so even you as a limited parent, you try in many ways to turn your children's pain that they will experience for their good. How much wiser is your heavenly father than you are? How much more tender and kind is his heart towards you? And so if you know how to give good gifts to your children to seek their good, how much more does God? And so can you not trust that he's doing more in you than you realize? Can you not rejoice that he is seeking to do you good through the evil and calamity? Can you not count on the fact that he is working in and through you to strengthen your faith, to perfect you? That is a great gift that so many in this world can't cl claim, where their suffering is just suffering. But for the child of God, when we look at it and reframe through this spiritual perspective, we can find there's actually a cause for joy mixed with the cause of lament. And in some ways, it seems almost too good to be true. And you think, how can, I, how can you have such a trust that God would do that for you? How can you have such an assurance that God will actually use your trials and temptations to work this perfection in you? Well, the reason you can have this assurance is because he's already done a lot more for you than that. He already gave his son to bear your flesh, to walk the way of sorrows and the way of grief, who Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 5, he cried out to God with loud cries and tears. God sent his son for you who, to bear the sufferings of this fallen world and more, to conquer sin and death and to rise in victory to ensure that no pain in this life for the child of God would ultimately be pointless. That nothing would be able to separate you from God's love. And to know that every pain and time of suffering will be fully recompensed in the new heavens and the new earth. A world of eternal goodness and glory. 
And this is the end of a steadfast and persevering faith. It's not just that we grow in, into God's perfections in this life, but that we attain finally to the perfect. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that when the perfect comes, when Christ returns and we are with him, these partial perfections, these strains and struggles, they will pass away. And we will receive the end of our faith, the salvation of your souls. And so why is steadfast and enduring faith so valuable? Because this is the faith that reaches the perfection of final glory. This is the faith that perseveres to the end and is saved. So we can count it joy. And we can see that counting all this joy, this is not just some trite phrase intended to help superficially cheer someone who's sad. This is a spiritual reality. It's a right of all the children of God. It's a guarantee that they will not ultimately be destroyed, that their pain will not ultimately be wasted, and that the end of all things, even the worst of things, will result in their eternal good. And this is a guarantee for the child of God, a gift that's been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and been sealed to your heart by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a gift, and that is a cause for rejoicing. And so, as you consider the trials, the temptations, the pain and suffering of this world, yes, lament them. Yes, grieve them. Yes, sorrow for them. But lift your eyes then to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than anything that you ask or think in them. And trust his loving heart that in spite of it all, he is for you and will continue to be for you. That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you had every right to leave us to wallow forever in our sin and destruction, but you've shown us incredible mercy in Jesus, incredible grace, and we thank you that through Christ's finished work, you have purchased to us perfect freedom, hope of eternal life, and the ability to see that our tears will not be wasted, for you gather them all in a bottle. And if not in this life, in eternity you will res restore the years that the locusts and pain of this world have eaten and stolen from us. The corruptions we've endured and experienced. We will see you, we will see it all, and we will rejoice saying on that day that you have done all things well. To you be the glory. But Lord, for now, grant that your people would have joy in the knowledge that you are preserving them and you are working in them, in their trial, perseverance, and a perseverance that results in the perfecting of their soul, in their likeness to Christ, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Thank you for this gift, and would you continue that work in us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.